Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On today's episode, we have Lachlan, Camille, Ricardo, Lauren, Tim and Justin. So today we're going to be talking about cities of the future. We're going to focus on the city of science, Boston. Uh, We're going to talk about the Boston bombings and how crowdsourcing crime-fighting technologies can lead to breakthroughs. We're going to talk about intelligent plans and designs of cities. And also we're going to run through some fact and fiction of, of some cities. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Okay, so every week we try and focus on a significant city in the realm of science. And this week we're going to be talking about Mock Boston. So, Justin, Boston is the home of MIT. That's right, and if you know anything about your gig culture, it's pretty much the mecca for nerds. Everything that you can think of that's famous probably has some connection to MIT. Even Half-Life and Gordon Freeman got his PhD from MIT. Um, And that's where they also have some amazing pranks, some hilarious things. It's the birthplace of Facebook, but, you know, it's all, all really complicated and cool. One of the funny parts about Boston now, though, is it's really a hub of crazy innovation. Whether that be the latest, uh, the latest uh, battery-powered planes, robotic cars, wearable exoskeletons, Roombas, um, all of that kind of stuff comes out of the Boston, Boston scene. But one of the best new pieces of technology that's come out of Boston that we think we should draw attention to is the latest in wearable computing, Google Glass for dogs. Which, which basically, they're developing wearable computers that you can put on your dog. So, Justin, I have one question. Yes. It's a pretty important question. I think Why? <laughs> and the Dogs answer is... Dogs want to know. Dogs want to know what's happening in their world. And they want to be able to Instagram things in blue and yellow with an amazing dog mode hashtag filter. Uh, dog breakfast. That's what I want to see on my Facebook wall. Well, that's funny, yeah, because people do make Facebooks for their dogs already, and they do I've take pictures that. of food, <laughs> so that is actually, yeah, Ricardo, that's going to be what's going to happen. My dad runs it, okay? <laughs> so, Boston, the answer to the question is why, and the answer is why not? Innovation for innovation's sake is what Boston is famous for. That's why it's our City of Science for the week. So obviously not everything that comes out of Boston is, is fun and games. Um, obviously there was this really, really serious incident a couple of months ago, the, the Boston bombings, where a lot of people were, were grievously injured or, or killed. Um, and something very, very interesting was how the internet responded to this, to this really serious event um, and how they tried to use crowdsourcing to catch the perpetrators. Within minutes of the event, uh, the... It appeared that the entire, uh, entirety of Reddit um, became uh, crime solvers and tried to analyse video and, um, and news sources to find out who was the perpetrator. They met with limited success. Uh, interesting look into how, with the power of the internet, we can have millions of people analysing the same data to come up with, to um, effectively solve crimes. So basically you've got a Mechanical Turk sort of situation where you've got hundreds and hundreds of people looking at the same footage to try and notice new things. Is yeah. that basically what they were doing? Yeah, that was it, as well as... As well as scanning all the photos that people had, because it was such a big public event that everyone had their cameras out, and not only did you have all the cameras that a city has, um, CCTV, cameras for an event, cameras on certain buildings, cameras, traffic lights for protecting speeding and things like that, they had a whole variety of cameras plus all the cameras that we all carry around with ourselves. And because the first bombing happened and then there was a second one, 
Every, everyone, basically, everyone who was around there had their cameras out if they weren't already running. And sometimes some people were doing both. So there was a wealth of data from thousands upon thousands of cameras, photos, footage, and everything that needed to be processed. The internet took it upon themselves to, um, to upload and analyze these images. It unfortunately had the um, negative effect of they did uh, accuse the wrong man of, of the event. They all discovered why we actually pay people to do this. So that sort of raises the issue of internet vigilantism, where it's very easy on the internet to find information and to make assumptions and to then have a large number of people suddenly target someone saying, this person has done a bad thing, let's get them. And that can be really, really dangerous. Yeah. And, and I suppose this is a new form of the whole uh, trial by media. Um, yeah. It used to be only uh, large uh, media corporations and newspapers that uh, could potentially pull something like this off. But um, now anyone with access to the internet has this power. And it was really weird because it was the internet posting photos of people going, ah, this has got to be the person. And then suddenly the media would run with that story and then people would post more things. And it was a, self, a self-defeating a self cycle. And it, and it can bring out, like most vigilantism, can bring out the worst in people. Um, there was such a cry for blood uh, and for justice that people were really hunting for anyone they thought might be responsible, which unfortunately, in the mindset of the American conscious, brought out fears of 9-11 and as a lot of targeting of people with Islamic backgrounds. They actually found one of the people who was accused of this um, was, a, was an exchange student who had been studying at MIT, who'd come across, uh, I believe, from India, and they'd found him, he, they found him later had committed suicide. Now, the body that they'd found for him was actually, he committed suicide before the Boston bombings, but since they couldn't find this guy, he was missing, and he was a suspicious person. Everyone really focused on this guy for a while, and, he, and it was really damaging, obviously not to the, the, the man, man in question, because he, he, he'd obviously, that, that, that had occurred before the actual bombing, but in an unrelated circumstance. But for his family to see his name brought up and not be able to just deny it, it was really quite powerful. And then for the media to take that and run with it, I think it's, it's really, really dangerous when the media sort of takes these unfounded internet things. It's like, well, if lots of people are talking about it, we're going to just report on it anyway. And that's really, really damaging. And so dangerous. this has become like a new age witch hunt, basically. That's, yeah. 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 And it's actually really funny because the Salem witch trials that everyone thinks of those witch hunts, that's actually very close to Boston. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's in the Massachusetts area, which is where Boston is in the United States. One of the, uh, one of the interesting other parts about this is the only reason why the FBI released the photos of the Sarnev brothers is because the media was talking about so many other candidates and so many other people, the FBI made the decision is they had to even though they hadn't got the people and they were waiting, they wanted to try and arrest these guys before they publicised their photos. Because of what the internet was doing and the media, um, they actually had to release information that they would have normally, in the course of a normal police investigation, kept secret. So they had to release this classified information to protect innocent people from the media storm. Basically, yes. And by releasing that, they actually caused a lot more danger. If they'd just been able to find these people, target them, without tipping them off that they knew who they were, they could have probably avoided the massive gun battle and the sad deaths that occurred. Because they would have been able to find them, figure out where they were, and then sweep in and get them, as opposed to causing a massive manhunt through the city, a massive gun battle all night, leaving the city on edge for another 48 hours after the actual main event. So people should stop trying to be Batman and just let the police who are hired and trained in this work possibly we do it instead? We don't all have millions of dollars to become Batman mm. and 
not have dead parents. It, it, um, it does raise the issue, though, that crowdsourcing could be potentially useful, but it also shows how crowdsourcing is inherently dangerous uh, due to its un uncontrolled nature. And there's um, actually a show on a um, Australian free-to-air network um, dealing with solving crimes by people calling in and using the internet and stuff, and I'm quite worried about what it's going to do. I mean, assuming the whole thing isn't completely fabricated, if they're encouraging this sort of mentality, it's encouraging people to want to make a difference, but in a really dangerous way. So the warning there is that we have a lot of great technology and a lot of great opportunities out there, but we need to ca take caution as we do that and let people who are trained in these areas take the most responsibility because that's what they have the skills for. So we've been talking about cities that have a lot of technology and are, are sources of, of new innovation. But Justin, I don't see in those cities a lot of actual futuristic stuff. I mean, they still look like old cities. Where are the cool sci-fi cities from, from my things I read when I was a kid? Mm. And so this is really interesting because we're talking about Boston. And Boston is actually one of the cities that's trying out all these crazy new technologies to help make them super smart. Maybe not the full way that Lachlan wants to with his hoverboards and, uh, and teleporters throughout no, the city. Just hoverboards. Okay, just hoverboards. Um, but there's a lot of work actually in intelligent cities, or what they call uh, smart cities, that are in place right now. Like companies are selling technologies that monitor all of the city, integrate with Twitter, integrate with um, customer call centers, complaints, asset management systems where they look at, whoa, hang on, this generator in this part of the city is you know, overheating or electricity is not going to this part of the city or the traffic lights are in a traffic jam here. Piecing that all together and bringing it to a dashboard. If you will, this is technology that basically makes what you see in SimCity a reality. So you can actually have someone sitting at a desk checking to make sure everything is okay. Yes, like you would in controlling SimCity. This is a, these are products that exist from companies like IBM and Siemens, who are actually doing, IBM in particular, doing work with Boston at the time of the bombings to try and help them in processing all that data. But it just uses everything that's out there with all this information from cameras, um, um, control systems, uh, and everything that we've scattered throughout the city, and using that to bring it all into one place and do crazy things like basically run a city like you would SimCity. The only downside, of course, with the SimCity is when you have to watch out inevitably for the disasters that come, such as the giant space alien landing on it or um, your budgeting situation running out and having negative money, um, <laughs> which are all challenges we face whilst playing SimCity. <laughs> but it's really cool because if you're interested in this kind of thing and if you think about stuff that we envisage as just being like impossible, like games... These are actual things that people have then gone, no, 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 we'll actually make something that does that. You know, this is, this is actually a really easy way to control a city. Why don't we make that a reality? And people are. And so if you've got innovative ideas, we get inspiration from science fiction and we actually go, hey, that was a cool thing. Let's turn that into reality. And it's happening with cities. Hoverboards may be a little bit far away, but technologies exist right now that we, could, uh, we can use and we'll probably be seeing them in cities to come right now in the next couple of years. So, you guys know I like to live on the edge. You're pretty edgy. I am pretty edgy. And one of the most dangerous things I do in my day-to-day -day life is getting on a tram in Swanson Street. Really? Why's that? I thought that was pretty safe, you know? Well, you've got this strange road that has trams on it and has bikes on it. And it's trying to coordinate pedestrians. And so, to get on a tram, I need to walk over the bike bit. And when these bike bits were first introduced, actually... Um, 
They, the Melbourne City Council employed people in sport referee uniforms to yell at you or blow whistles at you. They're like, stop, you're endangering your life. What are you doing to get on the trams? But Justin... There has to be a better way. <laughs> there has to be a better way. And you were telling me about some other cities who sort of employ better methods than performing arts graduates to keep people safe on their roads. So in Europe, <laughs> in Europe, where they have a lot of public transport and a lot of small, narrow, crowded streets, they have to come up with solutions. In Melbourne, we have a lot of space, so we don't care. We're like, oh, we'll just build a new freeway that goes through here. That's fine. We don't care. We don't, we don't think creatively because we can just expand. In Europe, they don't have that luxury because their countries and cities are not that big. We'll build a road through the church. Yeah. So and, and not only that. They're populated as well. We've got the space to expand. A lot of Europe is already inhabited, so if you are going to build a big highway, you're most likely going to be destroying some people's houses. And in cities, that's where it gets really complicated. They have to share all this space somehow. So a lot of town planners in Europe are incredibly creative, especially from Northern Europe in the Netherlands and Scandinavia, have a great innovative design technique they call shared spaces. And the best way to describe this is... Do you know how in, Swan in Burke Street Mall, you've got the mall? And there's no real difference between where the trams are and the mall. There's no start and finish point. Um, you have to be careful when you're walking across the middle, because you're like, yes, there might be a tram there, I'm going to try not to die. And you have to think about it. And they do that same thing, but with cars and with bikes. So everyone is sharing this space as the pedestrians. And the idea behind it is that it makes you more conscious of what you're doing for a driver. So you're not just going to the lights, whipping out your phone, Snapchatting your friends, and then keep going. You're actually thinking about what you're doing at all times. You're moving, but very slowly, but you're moving. So there's less traffic jams. So you're saying by making it more dangerous or making it more likely you're going to hit someone, people actually pay more attention and the safer as a result. That's yeah, basically. But you also get more flow and there's no stopping because there's no big lights. You don't have to try and fight to keep people separate. You don't need to build dedicated bike lanes and waste a lot of money redesigning everything. You can just get everyone to share the one space. And they've had some great success in, in Northern Europe for a long time, but it's starting to move into England and other places as well. And it's the exact opposite philosophy of what we've just done with Swanston Street. <laughs> Which is paying a lot of money to have separate lanes and then having to cross those lanes and die. Yes. And, and an added benefit of this is, is not only um, uh, is it a shared resource, which is excellent, but you also have a lot more human interaction. So that they found that they've implemented these um, strategies that the cyclists uh, were going to have more communication with the, uh, with the vehicle drivers. Um, and that way, having that human interaction, you're more likely to look out for someone and not hit them. Um, because you know they're there, you make direct eye contact, and the, the communication just flows a lot better. What's really fascinating about this is it's kind of a back-to-the-future moment. When we had cars as a brand new thing that were coming out as, as new exciting ideas, they shared the roads with carriages, with bikes, with people, and there wasn't really a demarcation where shops ended and footpaths or anything like that began. Everyone just walked everywhere, and that's how our roads sort of existed. It wasn't until about the 20s and 30s when there started to be a lot of deaths from really dangerous road accidents that they separated out pedestrians from the roadway. And we're kind of returning back to what we had previously. There were some good reasons why we abandoned, we, we, we separated things out, especially for very fast-moving vehicles. But for general city 
uh, use, where we're already going at 30 kilometers an hour, you can actually sort of do this very safely and interestingly. And the good thing is that um, in many of these situations, the onus is actually on the autom automobile driver to look out. And legally speaking, if there is a collision, um, it's down to the, the driver of the car. So that way it provides more incentives for uh, people to drive a bit more uh, safely and suitably for these smaller environments um, and to look out for these cyclists because a lot of the time uh, in Melbourne, for instance, it's very dangerous to uh, even use a bike lane, which is a lane dedicated for bikes because you have to watch out for cars turning across your lane, people opening their doors. So I think in, in this way, it transfers some of that onus uh, onto the driver. And that's a really great way to use some innovative design and town planning to make the street safer and maybe a bit more efficient. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So this week we have explored the idea of internet crime fighting. We've talked a bit about Boston um, and intelligent city planning. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.